Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety, labor, and employment world. Remember how a few months ago I was complaining a little bit about the lack of court decisions involving public safety, labor, and employment issues, and I was blaming it on the combination of Omicron and uh, what Omicron did to federal court staffing and also the holidays, Uh, and I predicted that in the first few months of 2022, uh, we would see a spate of significant cases coming down. And boy, did that prediction turn out to be right. I'm going to, in a few minutes, admit how I was wrong in something else. So I'm not bragging too much here. I'm offsetting my mistake. Uh, We have seen some really significant cases coming down. I'm going to try to get to four or five of them in this podcast, uh, including, uh, I think, the major cell phone privacy decision that has ever been issued. Uh, by a court in a public safety case. That's a case that comes out of Phoenix. I'll also talk about an unusual case that applies the principles of qualified immunity uh, in the fire service, not a police case, but in the fire service. Uh, I'll talk about uh, a new FLSA decision that has come down on whether or not an employer has to pay for what's called gap time, and we'll explain that. Uh, And, of course, I've just got to get to the big decision out of Chicago uh, last week from an arbitrator upholding Chicago's vaccine mandate uh, for police employees. Uh, But first, let's talk about the Phoenix cell phone case. I need to uh, set the stage for this a little bit. This all goes back to a few years, six, seven years, to a case called uh, Riley versus California. Uh, Riley is a criminal case. It involves someone with gang connections who was stopped by San Diego police. Uh, They did a search incident to an arrest. You don't need a warrant to do a search incident to an arrest. It's one of the exceptions to the Fourth Amendment's warrant and probable cause requirements. They find a cell phone, they look at the contents, and they use the contents to indict Riley for attempted murder. Riley files a motion to suppress the contents of the cell phone, and that's the case that goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the fundamental question for the Supreme Court is, what degree of privacy do we, all of of us as citizens, have under the Fourth Amendment for our cell phones? What kind of property is a cell phone? uh, Is it kind of like our homes, or is it more like our garages where we may have less privacy rights, or our vehicles where we have less privacy rights, to be sure? And the Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, and this Supreme Court decides so few things unanimously right now. It's the most fractured Supreme Court in the last hundred years. But it decided Riley unanimously finds that cell phones are entitled to the highest degree of protection under the Fourth Amendment. To get into a cell phone, the court says, government must have a warrant and probable cause to believe that the cell phone was an instrumentality of a crime. So when Riley comes down, there's a lot of us who do what I do, represent uh, 
our clients in the public safety labor world, both management and labor lawyers doing this, a lot of us are kind of thinking out loud, talking to each other about how is Riley going to apply in the public sector workplace? Because after all, everybody who works in the public sector works for the government, which is subject to the strictures of the Fourth Amendment in its employment decisions. And most of us ended up predicting that cell phones would fall under what's roughly been called the workplace exception to the Fourth Amendment. What's that all about? That goes back even further. That goes back 15, 20 years or so uh, to a Supreme Court decision, a decidedly non-unanimous decision. Uh, the court, the justices were split 4-4-1 in this case. Uh, a decision called O'Connor versus Ortega. And in the case, the Supreme Court ends up holding that uh, there is a, this new exception under the Fourth Amendment for governmental workplace searches that are related to potential rule violations. And here's what the Supreme Court says. The court says, look, the public sector workplace maybe does have some privacy protections and maybe doesn't. And it's the employer that actually can control whether employees have a legitimate expectation of privacy in areas of the workplace. So take a locker, for example, a locker in a locker room. If the employer has done something to assure employees that they have an expectation of privacy in that locker, then the employer is going to need not probable cause, but reasonable suspicion. And not probable cause that a crime has been committed, but reasonable suspicion that there's a evidence of a potential rule violation inside that locker. But if the employer has done nothing to give employees any reasonable expectation of privacy in whatever this area of the workplace is, the locker in my example, and if the employer has in fact told employees, you have no expectation of privacy in this, whatever this is, um, then the employer can, anytime it wants to, search that area of the workplace no reasonable suspicion, no probable cause necessary. You see this, for example, with respect to employer-owned communication devices like cell phones or employer-owned uh, computer networks where employers uh, hand employees a piece of paper or they put it in their manual saying no expectation of privacy in this whatever this piece of equipment is. That's O'Connor versus Ortega in action. So uh, when we see Riley, a lot of us think, okay, that's going to be the rules with respect to personal cell phones. We were wrong. Uh, this Phoenix case is the third case that has now looked at the issue. They all come out the same way. Uh, the biggest one until last week was one involving the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Uh, but the Phoenix case, I think, I think this one's going to have a lot of legs. It's a trial court decision from the, a federal court, but it is one of the most thoroughly reasoned and I think well-reasoned opinions in this area. Uh, 
that has ever been decided. Uh, so with that as a prelude, let's dive into the case. This case involves Christopher Turiano. Uh, Turiano is a 25-year veteran of the Phoenix Police Department. Uh, until fairly recently, he served as a grenadier in the department's tactical response unit, uh, meaning he was in charge of munitions. And on August 22nd, 2017, President Trump came to town in Phoenix. The uh, tactical response unit, including Turiano, is activated, assigned to oversee ground operations uh, at a large protest that was going on in downtown Phoenix. The protest devolved into violence. Protesters were throwing things uh, at officers, damaging property, um, defying the instructions of officers as to where they could be and where they couldn't be. And, and then after one protester, um, a fellow named Joshua Coben, kicked a tear gas container toward police, Turiano fi fired a 40 millimeter less lethal uh, weapon at Coben. It struck Coben in the groin area. The incident was captured on video and it was published all over the Western world, the video was. You could see it on local and national news media outlets as well as uh, the unofficial media of the internet. A year later, uh, by the way, nobody questioned whether Turiano properly used the less, less lethal munition. Nobody else in the city never did. Uh, so there was no question in the city's mind that he appropriately used force. But a year later, a group of protesters and a couple of nonprofit groups file a class action lawsuit against the city and Turiano and many other officers for excessive force. Uh, the city's lawyers retained counsel outside counsel asked the individual officer defendants to allow their personal cell phones to be imaged and searched for specific terms related to the litigation. The officers raised privacy concerns and they're assured by the city's lawyers that the data would remain confidential, would be downloaded and stored not by the city but by a third party vendor, would only be used for purposes of dealing with the protest lawsuit and would be subject to a protective order that would keep portions of the information on the cell phones off limits. Uh, okay, uh, that was okay with the officers. They had their phones imaged. And then two and a half years later, February 2021, we're up to now, there's a media report uh, concerning the existence of a challenge coin that was circulating in the Phoenix Police Department that appeared to commemorate the events of the August 22nd protest. On one side, the coin de uh, depicted a caricature uh, of uh, the, uh, obviously, Coben being hit in the groin by Turiano's munition, uh, along with the words, and I'm quoting, good night, left nut, end quote. On the other side, the coin stated the date and location of the protest and the phrase, quote, Make America great again, one nut at a time, end quote. Well, if you're getting media reports about that sort of stuff circulating, what's the end result? An investigation, right? So the city hires outside lawyers uh, to look into the creation and circulation of the coin and also whether there was any potential connection between the inscription and on the challenge coin and the neo-Nazi slogan, good night, left side. Uh, 
this one was news to me. I had never heard that phrase before, but apparently there is such a thing. The lawyers ask the officers if they can take a look at the image cell phone data from back at the time of the, the lawsuit, the protest lawsuits. The officers, including Turiano, decline, and the investigation results with a unconclusive, inconclusive uh, determination. Although the investigators do conclude that Turiano didn't have anything to do with the circulation of the challenge coin. Well, the city isn't satisfied, uh, so the department's Professional Standards Bureau begins its own investigation into the challenge coin. Uh, the Professional Standards, Standards Bureau is not like the lawyer investigators. It doesn't ask Turiano, can we see the image of your cell phone? It orders him to turn over the image to his cell phone. Turiano objects, and very quickly, uh, Turiano, with the assistance of his union, uh, plea, the Phoenix Law Enforcement Association, files a lawsuit uh, contending that the search of the compelled phone violated Turiano's Fourth Amendment rights. And that gets us to this, um, I think, bombshell and very well-done opinion by the federal court judge. Uh, the first thing that the judge has to decide is, does Turiano have a reasonable expectation of privacy in his cell phone? And the court says, this is an easy decision. And uh, that's the court's word, easy. Uh, and I'm going to read to you a, a little bit more of this opinion than I normally read to you from opinions uh, because of the importance of it. Why is there... Uh, a expectation of privacy that Turiano has in the image data. Uh, the court says, here are the reasons. Uh, this was Turiano's personal cell phone. Quote, the city did not purchase the phone and does not pay for the data plan. Turiano generally does not use the phone for work purposes, and no other city employees have access to the phone or its data. And the judge is just getting going here. Quote, and the image data contains an enormous amount of deeply personal information that is entirely unconnected with Turiano's employment, including his personal correspondence and financial information. While an employee's expectation of privacy in the workplace may be reduced by prior notice to the employee, O'Connor versus Ortega, right? Uh, the department had no policy in place making the workplace subject to such a search. But then the court goes on and says, okay, even though I found a reasonable expectation of privacy here, does that workplace exception apply at all to this sort of situation involving a personal cell phone? Because if it doesn't apply, then where are we? We are with a warrant and probable cause under the Fourth Amendment, a warrant and probable cause that a crime has been committed. And so uh, the judge says, I should at least decide whether the workplace exception even remotely applies. And the city's argument here is, look, this, this cell phone was on the workplace, so therefore we can take a look at it. And the judge says, no. That's incorrect. Quote, not all searches 
conducted for administrative purposes come within the scope of the workplace exception. An employer's warrantless search of an employee's home, for example, doesn't come within the exception, even when the search is conducted to investigate workplace conduct. Rather, such a search requires probable cause and a warrant. To hold otherwise and permit the workplace exception to justify warrantless government intrusion even into those areas such as the home that deserve the most scrupulous protection from government invasion would eviscerate the Fourth Amendment's efficacy for government employees. End quote. Wow. Is this judge really saying that for a public employer to search an employee's personal cell phone, it will need a warrant and probable cause? Absolutely. That's exactly what this judge is saying. Back to the opinion. Properly understood, the workplace exception is limited to those searches that are conducted in the workplace context. This includes those areas and items related to work that are generally within the employer's control, but it does not include those areas and items that are not related to the employee's work and are generally with, not within the employer's control. And here comes the list. Quote, for three reasons, this court agrees with the two other courts that have found cell phone searches to be outside the workplace context. First, a personal cell phone is just that, personal. As such, it's not generally within the employer's control. Second, a personal cell phone, far more than even a closed briefcase or a locked safe, contains sensitive personal information that is entirely unrelated to an individual's employment. Third, cell phones are so pervasive an aspect of modern life that virtually any public employee will have and occasionally use a personal cell phone during business hours. Here it comes, that an employee's personal cell phone happens to be within the employer's business address or happens to be used to send the occasional work-related message is therefore insufficient to render the cell phone part of the workplace search exception. Oh my goodness, if I'm right, and this case has the legs I think it will, this essentially tells us that the practice that is all over the country and in expanding practice of employers demanding that employees turn over their personal cell phones in internal affairs investigations, that practice is a thing of the past. As I said, this is truly a bombshell opinion. Okay, let's go to Chicago. Let's talk about the ruling that we got last week on the Chicago police vaccine mandate. Just a little bit of background. Uh, there's been a, a huge amount of litigation that has been filed over the city of Chicago's vaccine mandates. Uh, the, the city required 
months ago now, almost six months ago, that all uh, all of its employees be subject to a vaccine mandate. Uh, the Fraternal Order of Police uh, objected to that and filed a series of grievances and demands to bargain and unfair labor practice complaints, as did uh, the the other police unions, there are four police unions uh, in the Chicago Police Department. The FOP re represents the rank and file unit, um, and the P Policeman's Benevolent and Protective Association of Illinois represents three separate units, one for sergeants, one for lieutenants, and one for captains. At any rate, these various unions were involved to a greater or lesser extent in filing all these legal proceedings. Uh, they culminated with the, uh, the vaccine mandate being put on hold by a trial court judge uh, pending the arbitration of the grievances uh, and uh, the, the vaccine mandate as applied to other employees, uh, in particular firefighters and general employees, actually went to arbitration first. And we got an arbitrator's decision in the end of 2021 from arbitrator George Rumel Jr. upholding the vaccine mandate with a, a few uh, tweaks that arbitrator Rumel put in, but the, the underlying mandate itself uh, he upheld. You may recall that I did a podcast on that decision. I'll call it the firefighter decision, although it also involved general employees. And I said that it put the police unions in a very, very difficult position for several reasons. First of all, uh, arbitrator Rumel uh, is one of the most respected arbitrators in the country. Uh, the way I put it, I think, a couple months ago was that if you picked 100 arbitrators in this country at random and said, who are the top three arbitrators in the country, uh, I think Rommel's name would appear on more lists than anybody else's name. He's just that well-respected. He's been arbitrating forever and ever. So that's one reason why I thought that put the police unions in a bit of a box. Second thing, they had already picked their arbitrator. It was George Rumel Jr., the same arbitrator who decided the firefighter case. And that put the police unions in a very, very difficult situation with respect to the burden of proof. They were going to have to prove that there was something in their collective bargaining agreements that was different than in the firefighter and general employees' collective bargaining agreements, something that prohibited a vaccine mandate. And arbitrator Rommel, uh, in a case that was decided on uh, February 23rd, arbitrator Rommel ended up saying there is nothing different in the police contracts. There is nothing that bars uh, a vaccine mandate. So uh, what goes on in this very lengthy arbitrator's opinion, I think it's 58 pages long, it's much longer than the firefighter opinion that arbitrator uh, Rommel uh, wrote. Uh, he, he starts off by saying, look, uh, I've got just one job here. Uh, my job is to figure out whether there's anything in these collective bargaining agreements that prohibits the city from imposing a vaccine mandate. I'm not 
looking at all those other issues. I'm not looking at the unfair labor practices and the demands to bargain and and everything. I'm just looking at whether or not uh, the collective bargaining agreements prohibit a vaccine mandate. And then Arbitrator Rommel decides to look at precisely some of that other stuff. And what he's looking at are the court decisions on vaccine mandates. And uh, he ends up rejecting the police union's arguments that those court decisions uh, actually oppose a vaccine mandate. And uh, and what the police unions are saying is, you know, there's a, a couple of federal courts that have enjoined the federal vaccine mandates, and therefore you should follow their lead, arbitrator Rommel. Uh, now, the those federal vaccine mandates involved a different issue than most vaccine cases. They did; those cases did not involve the constitutional rights of employees. They instead involved an issue of the balance of power and powers under the federal constitution, and whether or not the executive branch had the authority to impose a vaccine mandate in the absence of the approval of the legislative branch, Congress. Uh, so very different issues. But uh, I can tell you that when you read, when you hear what I'm about to read from Arbitrator Rommel's opinion, he wasn't really too impressed by that argument. And he says, um, and, and I'm quoting, uh, as part of their respective arguments, the parties have invited this arbitrator to consider court review of vaccine mandates. As a starting point, it is noted that both the United States Supreme Court and the Seventh Circuit, that's the Seventh Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, that's the court that is the appellate court for Illinois area, that both the Supreme Court and the Seventh Circuit have recognized that vaccination mandates by state and local governmental uh, governments are, are constitutional. The unions, he said, rely on decisions of two United States District Court judges in Texas who enjoined in separate cases the vaccine mandate for military personnel and federal civil employees on the grounds that the president didn't have the authority to issue such a mandate. However, United States District Courts are not the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, the arbitrator then goes to review more stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the collective bargaining agreement. This stuff is what's going on in other big cities around the country in terms of a vaccine mandate. And the unions make the argument that uh, out of the nine largest cities in the country, uh, the majority don't have a vaccine mandate for their police departments. The arbitrator says, uh, sorry, not important to me. Yeah, the majority don't. Uh, five to four don't. Uh, but of the four that do, they're the other big cities. They include New York and Los Angeles and San Diego. And he throws in San Jose as well. And says, so, so there's nothing in the comparable jurisdiction data that uh, is important. And then the arbitrator goes on a lengthy review of the medical evidence. This goes on for pages and pages in the arbitrator's opinion. By the way, we're going to post the arbitrator's opinion in the show notes. You'll be able to read it. Um, and he ends up 
uh, concluding that the city's medical evidence is stronger than the union's and it supports a vaccine mandate. Uh, he goes through all the uh, arguments that you've probably heard if you've been involved in this issue, uh, the natural immunity argument, those sorts of things, uh, and ends up concluding that on balance, the city's, uh, or I'm going to quote from his opinion, the medical evidence on this record supports a vaccine mandate. And, says the arbitrator, because that is the case and because of any the absence of any explicit restriction on vaccination in the collective bargaining agreements, I conclude that the vaccine mandate was within the management rights clause of the contracts. They're all in Article 4 of these contracts, and they're all essentially written the same. The arbitrator's bottom line is, quote, there was no legal impediment to the issuance of the vaccine mandate. Now, the arbitrator goes on to decide some other issues because the vaccine mandate had been around for so long, the deadlines no longer could work, um, and he ends up saying that uh, sworn members of the department have to have the first shot no later than March 13th and the second shot no later than April 13th. Uh, he also uh, deals with the, the, uh, the unions made an argument that the city was not uh, fairly handling, in particular, religious objections to the vaccine mandate. 6,621 members of the Chicago Police Department had applied for a religious exemption. Uh, and only 1.5%, 44 of them, had been granted as of the date of the arbitrator's opinion. Um, uh, slightly more than half were still pending, and slightly less than half uh, had been denied. So the, cities, uh, the unions were arguing that the city had unfairly denied religious accommodations. Arbitrator rejects that opinion. Uh, and then he uh, finally turns on, uh, turns to uh, issues of kind of procedure dealing with the vaccine mandate. In particular, he deals with those 3,800 people who have their requests for exemption pending. And he said they're exempt from the requirement to be vaccinated while a decision is pending. However, if their requests are denied, they then have six weeks to come in full compliance with the vaccination requirement. Uh, the last very small issue the arbitrator decides is that employees who are unable to uh, report for work due to an adverse reaction to the vaccine uh, get paid leave, and it's not it cannot be charged as a, a sick leave violation. Uh, so not an unexpected opinion, right, given the arbitrator's ruling in the fire department cases. Uh, and uh, there have been several other arbitrators now. Uh, by my count, there have been eight arbitrators who have weighed in on one way or another of a vaccine mandate, and all of them have upheld vaccine mandates. This is getting to be kind of a very, very predetermined result in these cases. Okay, let's, uh, let's move away from the uh, kind of juicier sorts of cases to the technical. 
I need to talk to you about the Fair Labor Standards Act for a little bit and the whole issue of gap time because we have a pretty important decision from a federal court of appeals. This is the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Think of the area that's kind of around uh, Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, that sort of area of the country. The Fourth Circuit uh, historically was one of the most conservative federal courts of appeal, uh, but a lot of vacancies came up under President Obama, and it's now one of the less conservative federal courts of appeals. The federal courts of appeal are overwhelmingly conservative, and that means in the employment context, they're overwhelmingly pro-employer uh, and not pro-union. Uh, but there's gradations of that. And the Fourth Circuit's one of the less conservative places you could be bringing a Fair Labor Standards Act claim. Uh, so this case involves gap time. What is gap time? It's an issue that's bedeviled the federal courts for oh, 30 years now, uh, with courts reaching a variety of different rulings. This Fourth Circuit opinion uh, is by no means going to resolve that conflict, although I think it'll be influential. Uh, so here's, here's what gap time is. It's a classic, uh, the classic example is where an employer has adopted the Section 7K exemption under the Fair Labor Standards Act and is using a work period of seven to 28 days in length as an alternative to the FLSA's basic uh, measurement of overtime, which is a work week. Uh, as you know, if you're familiar with these Section 7K issues, uh, the overtime thresholds under the 7K exemption are higher than the overtime thresholds for the work week. So where, for example, most employees uh, have a 40-hour cap on non-overtime work, and then after that, they get overtime at the rate of time and a half. That's most employees in the country. However, the public safety employees covered by the sec Section 7K example exemption, I'm sorry, uh, don't get treated as generously. So a police officer on a seven-day work period, as opposed to a work week, doesn't get overtime until they work 43 hours in that work week. A firefighter, excuse me, work period, a firefighter in a seven-day work period doesn't get overtime till she or he works a 53-hour schedule. And then, and only then, does overtime kick in. So the 7K exemption permits employers to treat employees in public safety less generous than any other employees. If you think that's not fair, the answer lies with Congress or potentially the Department of Labor. But there hasn't been much of an effort by the national law enforcement and fire protection unions to seek changes in the Section 7K ex uh, exemption. And that's somewhat surprising because where did these 43 and 53-hour thresholds come from? Or the more common ones, a police officer, 171 hours in a 28-day work period or the 212-hour threshold for firefighters? Where did they come from? They came from a study that was conducted, oh, it's like 40, 50 years ago by the Department of Labor of the average hours worked 
in law enforcement and fire protection around the country. And the Department of Labor determined decades ago that the average police schedule was 43 hours in a seven-day period, and the average firefighter schedule was 53 hours in a seven-day period. If that study was done again today, would that be the same result? Of course not. Police officers don't work 43-hour weeks anymore. If anything, on the average, certainly in larger police departments around the country, they're working a bit less than 40 hours in a week. They're certainly not working 43 hours in a week. Uh, I did a study of the top 20 cities in the country in population in policing last year, and only one had a work week that was greater than 40 hours, and two had work weeks that were lower than 40 hours. So, and, and the same thing is true with firefighters. Firefighters have emphasized bargaining for Kelly days for so long that their average work week is less than 53 hours. So that's why I say it's surprising this hasn't been the subject of follow-up legislation because the entire factual basis for these thresholds isn't accurate anymore. Okay, I'm done with that rant. Let's let's talk more about gap time or talk at all about gap time. So what gap time is, is the difference between the employee's regularly scheduled work and whatever the overtime threshold is. So let's use the police example. Let's say that an officer is scheduled to work a 40-hour week. Uh, gap time would be the difference between 40 hours, the officer's regularly scheduled work, and the 43-hour Section 7K exemption work period threshold. Now, let me turn to the court's opinion. The, the individual facts in this case don't matter at, at all. It's just really important what the court has to say here, and you don't need to know the facts to understand that. Here's what uh, the court says. I'm quoting, there are two types of gap time, pure gap time and overtime gap time, end quote. What's that all about? Okay, pure gap time is where the employee works more than 40 hours, in my police example, but doesn't work more than the FLSA overtime threshold, in this case, 43 hours. So the employee works two hours, extra hours, sometime during that seven-day period. Those are called pure gap time claims. Overtime gap time claims, you know where this is going now, is where the employee does work more than the 43 hours. There's a gap between uh, the employee's regularly scheduled hours, 40 and 43, the FLSA threshold, and then the employee continues to work that extra time. What sort of compensation is the employee owed for the time in the gap? And the court says, look, uh, pure gap time, uh, that's really easy. Uh, every court that has decided the issue has decided that so long as the employee gets the minimum wage for the entire work period, there need be no compensation for pure gap time. But what about overtime gap time? I'm going to turn to the court's opinion. The court says, quote, 
The FLSA does not include language about overtime gap time, but that does not end our inquiry. The Department of Labor has weighed in on this issue and says that one must look at the employment agreement to determine whether the employee was first paid all straight time due under the agreement. Here it comes. Accordingly, an employee must be compensated at the agreed upon or regular straight time rate before any computation for overtime. In other words, the gap time in an overtime gap time case requires the employer to pay the employee at the straight time regular rate. Now, as I mentioned, courts have been split on this issue. There have been other courts that hold exactly what the Fourth Circuit just held. There have been courts that have ruled that the time in the gap in an overtime gap time case need only be compensated at the minimum wage. There have been courts that have ruled that so long as the employee gets the minimum wage for the entire work period, there need be no extra compensation for the time in the gap for an, in an overtime gap time case. So why is the court following the course it is here, saying there has to be at least straight time regular rate compensation? Back to the court. Quote, allowing any amount other than the full amount of straight time wages to count as compliance would frustrate the purposes of the FLSA just as surely as would non-payment for specified hours. Such action by employers would defeat the congressional purpose to place a penalty upon the performance of excess overtime work. I told you this was going to be technical, but I'll tell you, for those of us involved in FLSA cases, this is a really, really important decision. All right, last case I, I'm going to have time for is a medical marijuana case. Uh, you can expect to see more of these. There have been a few of them that have been out already. Uh, but you'll see more because we have so many more states that have uh, decriminalized medical marijuana. And uh, it, of course, a significant number of states that have decriminalized recreational marijuana. Uh, and the question that comes up is, is there some sort of employment right to use medical marijuana at home, even if you're not under the influence when you come to work. So this is a case that involves a corrections sergeant. He works for the Florida Department of Corrections. His name is Samuel Velez Ortiz. Uh, he is the recipient of a prescription for medical marijuana use. Uh, Velez Ortiz has sought and obtained a valid medical marijuana registration card from the State Department of Health. It's based upon his uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a qualifying condition. Uh, and uh, he used it uh, at home, and he did never used it in any fashion uh, that caused any risk to his colleagues or would put inmates at any risk. Uh, 
But he did fail a random drug test, as you might expect, for the presence of marijuana metabolites in his system, and the department fired him for violating its drug-free workplace policy. Velez Ortiz uh, challenged his termination. The case ends up, Florida has a very unusual system in terms of what does and doesn't get to the state labor board. You know, in most states, labor boards only decide labor relations, collective bargaining issues. That's not true in Florida. And this case actually ends up uh, in in Florida's Public Employment Relations Board. And uh, it... The board ends up having to decide whether or not Velez Ortiz's use of medical marijuana is protected by a provision in the Florida Constitution, let's call it the medical marijuana provision, which states that a medical marijuana patient is not subject to civil or criminal liability or sanctions. and specifically states that employers are not required to permit on-site use. Velez Ortiz argues that that implies they're required to accommodate off-site use. Uh, I called it the board. It's uh, Florida's Public Employment Relations Commission. I'm sorry about that. The commission uh, rejects Velez Ortiz's appeal. Uh, He says, look, this is, uh, or the commission says this is an issue of first impression. We've never decided it. Uh, The commission says it's not our job to rewrite the department's drug-free workplace policy or to question its wisdom. Uh, We're just looking at the Florida Constitution. And uh, the commission decides that the section of the Constitution, if you're counting, it's section 29A1 of the Florida Constitution, protects a patient only from liability or sanctions under Florida law. It does not provide any protections in the employment setting and does not require the employer to reasonably accommodate the off-site use of medical marijuana. Uh, the commission says, look, if, the, if we were to interpret the provision to protect off-site use of medical marijuana, we'd be writing new words into the constitutional clause. They don't exist. And we cannot construe that language as creating any sort of affirmative right. Uh, the bottom line, the Perk says, is that, quote, the legislature did not require employers to modify their drug-free workplace policies to permit the use of medical marijuana, but in fact has permitted an employer to continue enforcing drug-free workplace policies. Now, that's an opinion. Uh, it, it may be new to the Public Employment Relations Commission in Florida, but it's not new around the country. Uh, Usually this comes up in the context of uh, applications for unemployment compensation when an employee is fired for noncompliance with the drug-free workplace policy. Sometimes it's come up in arbitration opinions. But to the best of my knowledge, and I'd love to be corrected on this, so please send in your cards and letters on this, I do not know of a court, a labor board, or an unemployment compensation board that has held that 
employees are protected for the off-site use of either medical or recreational marijuana, uh, even though there's no proof that they are impaired. Drug-free workplace policies do not yet appear to be bending to the liberalization of rules concerning marijuana in our society. Will it happen in the future? Maybe. I don't know. I can just tell you it's not in the opinions of courts and labor boards now. Well, that's it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of First Thursday. Uh, we hope to see you in a couple weeks in Las Vegas at our Collective Bargaining for Public Safety Employees Seminar. Uh, we were there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Las Vegas actually opened up the, the day we were there for our seminar on union leadership and the masking policy came down. Uh, the, we still take COVID precautions seriously, so our seminar rooms are much larger than they need to be. The seats are well-spaced. We're back at the Flamingo right in the heart of the Strip, so hope to see you there. If not, Join me next month while we do the latest edition of First Thursday. This is Will Aitchison signing off.